It's the 16th of May, 2015, and this is episode 213. This show is intended for informational and educational purposes only. What cryptocurrency enables is new, empowering, and exciting, but we're not experts. Just obsessed companions walking the road towards a more peer-to-peer future. So Ripple is in the news again, and this time it might be as the first action that we see that kind of comes after the rumors that we heard late last year about um, a crackdown from uh, the U.S. federal government on tokens that are issued and then sold like an investment. Ripple has been fined by the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, FinCEN, $700,000 for willful violations of the Bank Secrecy Act. So maybe before we go into this story, I think we should maybe try to clarify our understanding of all these laws, because there's so many, it's hard to keep straight. Of course, it's very easy to run afoul of them. Recently, I think we talked about this new ruling from like the SEC that was to do with crowd sales, where if you're raising under $20 million, you can essentially sell kind of equity to people instead of just taking their money and not giving them anything in return. That's different than this. This was not the SEC. This was FinCEN, and they fined Ripple for Bank Secrecy Act violations. The company XRP2 is actually the company that that was charged with this. And essentially what they're saying is that before September 2013, when XRP registered as a money services business, they did not have an AML compliance program in place. They did not have a compliance officer on their staff. And they did not do know your customer on several uh, with several investors who may or may not have actually given them money. The one who is named in this is a transaction on the 30th of September when the company sold $250,000 in Ripple, the uh, XRP token, by email to Ripple Labs investor, Roger Veer, without requiring a know your customer form to be filled out. And then XRP is said to have failed to file two additional reports for attempted XRP purchases that took place between November 2013 and November 2014. So this is three instances that took place several years ago. This is reaching back pretty far. Well, it's reaching back pretty far, but it's important to note that this is $700,000 worth of fines for what is effectively failing to fill out a form that asks the person to put in their personal information on one successful transaction, and then two that it looks like didn't actually happen. They were required by the Bank Secrecy Act to file the suspicious activity reports on these transactions even though they didn't happen. So I looked at this and at first I was like, oh, well, this is this makes sense because Ripple is a centralized company, you know, a centralized company creating this decentralized protocol. They do have control of their token in a much more real way. And as we've you know talked about in a previous segment, they've given their users who create tokens on top of Ripple the ability to also control the token, the tokens that they issue in uh, ways that can make it easier to comply with government. But once you have that ability... Anybody can ask you to use it. And there's a whole bunch of other stuff that comes along with that. So the interesting part about this for me is that this action must have been in the works for a long, long time. This is not something that just came out of nowhere. Ripple Labs clearly knew about it. And again, isn't this the same thing that Charlie Shrem was charged for? Pretty much, yes. And in the case of Charlie Shrem, he was named as a compliance officer. In this case, I think what Ripple has had an issue with is that they didn't actually have a compliance program in place at that time. The Bank Secrecy Act requires the use of KYC AML in a program to be able to comply with anti-money laundering laws, which, among other things, means that suspicious activity reports, or SARs, need to be filed on 
any transaction above a certain threshold that used to be 10,000, I think it's being reduced to 3,000 now, or any activity that for other reasons flags a concern. I think in the case of Roger Fair, the issue there was that he had a felony against them in the past for something completely unrelated to Bitcoin. Selling mouse traps on eBay. Yes. That was his felony. He sold rat traps and something about that was illegal. Well, actually it was, um, it was an air cannon, which is this thing that makes a big boom sound to mm-hmm. repel birds or they use them at airports a lot in order to keep geese and other flocking birds away from the airport because they get sucked into aircraft engines. But you know, this thing that goes boom. It's an air cannon. It doesn't actually throw anything. It just makes a big booming sound. Apparently, it's considered interstate explosives selling or something like that. You know, if you read the details, it was a ridiculous overage case. The point being here that Ripple failed to apply AML and KYC compliance when they could and should, and under their licensing should have had a compliance program. So it is very similar to what Shrem was accused of and convicted of. And in fact, it proves the the adage here, the idea that we've been talking about on this program for a very long time, which is if you have a mechanism by which you interact with, with customers that requires AML, KYC, and you can do KYC and AML, you will be required to do those things and you will be required to add blacklists and monitoring and filing surveillance reports and all of these things. Was there a blacklist involved here? Like, was he not supposed to be able to buy that because he was a felon or something? I'm not clear on that. Well, the the BSA comes with blacklists and the associated rules. I can't remember what it is. There's a number of lists being maintained by different agencies that you have to check against. Uh, So the KYC is not just knowing who the customer is, but also checking them preemptively against specific lists to ensure that they're not included as under the list that the treasury maintains of people who you cannot do business with, which includes, among other things, people who have had their assets seized or freezed due to sanctions, which would include, for example, officials in the government of Iran and Venezuela and Cuba and various other people accused of various crimes by the U.S. government who have had their assets freezed and seized and you are not allowed to do business with them. So yes, there are blacklists. The blacklists already exist and you have to comply with these blacklists under BSA and other FinCEN requirements. I don't think Roger is on a blacklist. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that if they didn't take the information required to check against the blacklist and they didn't check against the blacklist, that in itself is a violation of BSA, regardless of whether the person was on the blacklist or not. It's an, a whole other violation if you actually do knowingly do business with someone who is on the list, which is a separate violation from the fact that you didn't check the list in the first place. The particularly interesting part to me about this, though, is that if you look at when this took place, this was in September and November of 2013. At the time, I mean, again, let's look at what the, what the uh, what this says. The most notable transaction of the three took place on the 30th of September 2013 when the company sold $250,000 in XRP by email to Ripple Labs investor Roger Veer. Okay, so at the time, September 2013, when they're saying sold for email, that means that he bought $250,000 worth of XRP, but paid in Bitcoin, right? 
So at the time, no government agencies, as far as I can recall, had ever commented on the legitimacy of what type of, you know, what type of value were these cryptographic tokens. So I'm just trying to figure out, like, was there a responsibility here? Yes, absolutely. First of all, I think what you're mistaking here is the transaction over the something that they did have control over and that they were offering in the form of a product or security and the consideration they received for that, which is the payment. doesn't matter what consideration. Roger Ver could have paid in goats. No matter what he paid, the, the point is that he received a financial instrument, XRP in this particular case, which since they had got on a license to as a money transmitter at the time, they were basically trading this financial instrument and FinCEN fined them for trading a financial instrument without applying KYC and AML. It doesn't matter what they received in consideration for that financial instrument. Right. But my point is, is that XRP wasn't a security at that point. There was no determination. There were no statements made by any sort of official organizations. I mean, they might have thought internally oh. that they were a security. But as far as I know, we didn't get anything out of the government until uh, later in 2013 or early 20 and yeah, later in 2013. Well, yeah, the, what we got later was a clarification that under existing law, if you do an offering in that form, an offering and what is a security and then what is an offering is a, is a really important question in Bitcoin. But it, it's not defined in terms of this is what it looks like. It's defined in terms of if you are offering something of value, which which includes the possibility of future gains. And under that kind of definition, it doesn't matter if it's a stock or if it's something like XRP. If it is all value and it has the possibility of future gains and you are selling it as such, it is an offering. It is a security. It doesn't matter whether FinCEN has called it that or whether they have to have a specific ruling identifying that specific thing as a security. So it's the use of it as an instrument to raise money, to build a business, or to do something that you hope will make you other money. Right. And if you look at the definitions in the law, they're really about exactly that. They're about how you, how you use it. It's, it's, it's a, if it walks like a duck and it sounds like a duck, it's a duck. You can call it a potato, but it's still a duck. And so if you offer something that is, you know, a speculative investment, of value that has the possibility of gaining value in the future, that is a security. It doesn't matter what you call it. And if you don't register to offer those securities, then you're in trouble. And if you're trading those securities, then you have to comply with other laws, et cetera, et cetera. So actually, Andreas, I think I interrupted you earlier when you were starting to say that basically this is what happens when you try to play ball with the government, Ripple in this case kind of put these structures in place to try to work in some compliance, and then it got essentially turned against them. Well, of course it did. I mean, this, the, the idea that if you're, if you're nice to government and, you, and if you sufficiently explain that what you're really trying to do is not going to harm consumers, they'll go easy on you and they'll be understanding is just shockingly naive. Uh, you know, for first of all, they don't, most of these bureaucrats don't give a damn about consumer protection. They care about getting reelected and they, they care about campaign support by the industries they're supposedly regulating and how to protect those industries from competition. Those are, that's how their incentives are aligned. So, you know, they're going to toe the line regardless and they, they don't play favorites. What they're afraid of doing is pushing against anyone who might be powerful and able to push back. So they're not going to use the full extent of these regulations to go after, you know, JP Morgan Chase or Citigroup. They're going to use it to go after Ripple because Ripple is an easy, soft target that's not going to be able to fight back. They're going to get brownie points from the Justice Department for fighting the incredible 
criminal spree that was about to happen <laughs> in that scenario. And, uh, and they don't need to worry about any repercussions on their career. So, of course, they're going to do that. This is the basic deal. If you create a system that is centralized, that can be connected to companies that can be sued, that can be put under the regulatory thumb, and a system that can allow blacklists to exist and enforce those blacklists, then blacklists will be enforced on you, regulations will be put on you, and then your cost of complying with those regulations will will very, very quickly lead you into adopting exactly the same kinds of business practices as the banks and competing on their playing field, which is exactly the whole point of these regulations to make it extremely expensive to compete on a very, very limited playing field where the existing incumbents have enormous power. Bitcoin sidesteps all that by saying, well, there is no point where you can provide blacklist because it's completely decentralized. There's no company you can sue behind it. And so the only points of Bitcoin that are sensitive to this are the edge points, exchanges, basically. And that's why we've seen companies like Coinbase and Circle effectively becoming more and more bank-like as they shift to playing in that playing field. They have to become more and more bank-like. But the point is, they're only one edge point of Bitcoin. They're not the whole system. And the rest of the system can exist in an area where these blacklists can't be applied. And so that's the advantage. A Ripple designed a centralized system to appeal to regulators. And, well, the regulators heard them. They came around and said, oh, what a cute little network you have there. <laughs> Stomp. Well, but Ripple isn't a centralized system. I mean, like, it, it, it just isn't. You can't really look at it and say that. You can say that the Ripple company or XRP2 or whatever other company, those are centralized entities. And since they control the code and can, you know, they basically have these same abilities as a core team, except they're all part of one company and are funded. Which can get sued, which just did get sued and which just did get fined. And not only that, under this fine, keep in mind, it's not just a fine. Part of this ruling was that it puts them under a consent decree. Essentially, they have to now change their practices to comply with, with these regulations. Part of it was the fine, but the other part was enforcing complete KYC across the board, KYC ML blacklists on everything they do. I think that there might be an alternative narrative here that certainly I'm not saying is the correct narrative, but it's one that has occurred to me as I've continued to read this and look into this, this issue. What if this is actually something that helps Ripple? Because if you look at how Ripple phrases themselves and how they position themselves, here's the quote. Ripple is an infrastructure technology for banks to build compliant payment networks. The settlement announced today does not impede our ability to execute on those bank integrations. So that is their core market. They have made many, many decisions that have emphasized that the market they care about are banks and banks care about compliance. But look at the origins of Ripple. Ripple was not designed to be a protocol for banks. That was just a market that they identified at a later point would be one of the better ones for them to go after because it's so big and because they could just have to get a few customers and a variety of other reasons. Yeah, that stood out to me too, Adam. Like, At what point did they change their mission so seriously? They couldn't have made these changes unless they were forced to. From my childhood, don't throw me in the briar patch, right? What if the tar baby? Yeah, the tar baby. What if, what if this is what Ripple wanted? You know, what if they wanted to, they had these problems and they had several problems. One is outstanding liability because since from very early on, they have been selling Ripple. And of course, the thing about XRP too isn't that they were selling it to people. It's that they were selling it at bulk rates to certain people. 
privately. Centralized solutions will appeal to centralized markets, can only be sold effectively to centralized markets, and will become more and more centralized as time goes by. And so that is essentially the bargain with the devil that they've made here. You dance with the centralized institutions, you become one of the centralized institutions. And so in order to appeal to that market, they became more centralized. And in becoming more centralized, they got under more regulatory pressure to become even more centralized. And before you know it, Ripple will be indistinguishable from Swift. It's just an open protocol Swift. That's all it is. And with that comes everything else, which means that, you know, five years from now, at the height of the Sino-Russian-U.S. currency wars, when the U.S. decides that, you know what, we can't do Ripple with the Chinese, we can't do Ripple with the Russians. Hey, Ripple, shut down your gateways to Russia, shut, shut down your gateways to China. Pretty much what they tried to do with SWIFT. So you're going to see, essentially, they become a pawn in a banking system that has become a weapon in, in a political currency war where the supposed consumer protection laws are used for geopolitical gamesmanship and have far exceeded their original mandates. You want to play in a total surveillance geopolitical banking system, then you become that. And, and that's exactly what Ripple has chosen to do. But let's not pretend that Ripple is decentralized or that they will be able to remain even slightly decentralized and slightly open for very long. They're well on their way down the slippery slope, and they're accelerating. And this was entirely predictable. It was predicted on this very show, and you can see it gradually, bit by bit, coming into focus. I think it's a little misleading to talk about this in a way, talk about the direction that Ripple has gone in a way that removes the element of choice or that that paints it as not a choice. They were forced to do it somehow. Um, it's always a choice. You know, if they really didn't, if the board didn't want to go down that road or if they didn't plan to, there's all kinds of things they could have done instead. Shut down, dissolve the company, uh, gone in a completely different direction with their code. I, so they, they did choose to do it. I, I don't buy that, that it was somehow forced on them. Well, but that's not what I'm saying. What I'm suggesting is that this is the only way something like this could have happened. Because if they had said, we're going to proactively make these changes, then everybody would have freaked out. Their own community would have freaked out. They are continuing to go down this path, and it is pretty easy to see. Again, we're not thinking about this from what market they're trying to appeal to. I don't think they care about being centralized. I don't think they care about a lot of these things that are kind of core to cryptocurrency. I think they care about succeeding as a business. And if you were going to do that, this, this fine is actually really good. Because again, it says things like, the bulk of the violations against both companies appear to have taken place between 2013 and early 2014, according to a more detailed addendum. Notably, the agreement between Ripple Labs, its subsidiary, and FinCEN has also taken place at the same time as a settlement between the companies and the U.S. Attorney's Office in uh, the Northern District of California. So they wrapped up a couple of things at once. Further, Ripple and XRP agreed to pay $450,000, but they didn't have to pay others among the factors cited by the DOJ were what the agency called Ripple's extensive cooperation with the government, its commitment to enhancing internal controls, and its promise that it would continue to cooperate in matters of future concern. Further, the company agreed to certain measures for a three-year term, including that it would disclose any documents, records, or other tangible evidence relating to BSA violations, designate employees. I mean, so like, yes, there's the thing that they have to go through and do anyways, but now again, because there's the appearance that, on the one hand, this forces them to do maybe the thing that they already wanted to do. And on the other hand, 
it validates their strategy completely and it puts them more firmly on the path of becoming the bank's PayPal. Right, the bank's PayPal. That's exactly it. The bank's PayPal is exactly what Ripple is. And I have no problem if the bank's PayPal is what you want to call it. And, you know, the banks will soon realize that the bank's PayPal can also freeze their accounts if they happen to be, I don't know, Chinese banks. And that's part of this game that's being played. But here's the problem. Ripple was never presented as the bank's PayPal to its early users. And the arguments that I constantly hear from from Ripple advocates and have heard from the very beginning is that, no, no, it's not centralized. It's it's decentralized. It's open. It's just like Bitcoin, only multi-currency. And it isn't, it isn't, and it isn't. And you're not fooling anyone anymore. It is the bank's PayPal. And the bank's PayPal is essentially not just over to the dark side. It's, you know, it's the bank's PayPal. It's everything that was wrong with PayPal after it got captured by the banking regulators. Only worse because it's between banks themselves and elevated at a higher level of geopolitical totalitarian surveillance shenanigan bullshit. Yeah, I mean, if that's what it is, that's what it is. Great. I don't want to invest in that. I don't want to use that for any of my transactions. And I knew that's what it was from the beginning. Wake up for anyone who thought that this was a decentralized open source, just like Bitcoin, only more flexible form of digital cryptocurrency, because it's not. It never was. Today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin is brought to you by the Trezor Hardware Wallet. If you've been thinking about getting a Trezor, the time to do it is now. You can use the discount code letstalkbitcoin.com to get your Trezor, normally about $120 for $99, and enjoy the fact that you're also donating about $10 of your purchase price to the show. This discount won't be around forever. Visit buytrezor.com for more information, and remember to use the discount code letstalkbitcoin.com. Today's magic word is glass. That's G-L-A-S-S. Glass. You've got until the 23rd of May to log in at letstalkbitcoin.com or the Let's Talk Bitcoin iOS app to enter it for your share of the listener rewards. Do you guys think this is the end of this? Or the, the phrase securities was mentioned a bunch of times. Do you think they're going to have some other action from the SEC? Or is it just FinCEN or... Is this taken care of, or is this not the end? Against Ripple? Yeah. I, I think probably they're going to continue to play this dance. I mean, listen, um, what JP Morgan Chase has been fined three times this year so far. Some of those fines were multi-billion dollars, but there were a- at least two or three other cases that were simply in the tens or hundreds of millions of dollars of fine. This is the cost of doing business in banking. You can break any laws you want. No one will go to jail. You'll just get fined. Ripple is finally being recognized as a fully-fledged member of the bankster class. And now they can go and do their banksterism. And they're going to get a slap on the wrist every year or two. You know, if they start, I don't know, trading with Mexican cartels, they'll probably get a little fine. And then they'll fix their ways and change their process and do it all over again. And they've joined the cabal of, of big banksters where they get away with doing these things. 
maybe Ripple can grow up to be a, a you know a drug laundering bank like HSBC or a uh, mortgage foreclosing middle class destroying bank. Whatever you know, they have all of these options ahead of them. So yes, this will keep happening. Uh, they'll keep paying minor fines uh, so that they can continue escalating their criminality. The initial fine was being punished for non-crimes, but soon, once they get into the big leagues, they'll be able to commit mega crimes against the middle class and get away with it. Yeah, you know, the thing that stood out for me as I was reading this was there was something, I think it might have even been in the press release put out by FinCEN that said they paid some kind of thing to settle potential criminal charges. So it was basically like the government saying, okay, we're going to charge you with these charges unless you give us money and then <laughs> then it'll go away. It's pretty blatant what's happening there, you know? I don't know why most people don't see that. It's blatant, but it's an investment for them. Yeah, of course it is. But why do people like see, I mean, why do people read that in the news and just see that as, oh yeah, that's perfectly normal and legit, you know? Well, because to a certain extent it is normal and legit. <laughs> it's an investment. This was the guild fee to join the guild of banksters. They paid the fee. They're now a member of the guild. Regulation is a fee to join the guild of banksters. That's all it is. It was never about consumer protection. There's a quote from a guy named Rory Sutherland um, on uncertainty, and uh, it's it's not the actual duration of the wait so much as the amount of uncertainty that you experience during it, whether that determines whether or not it is pleasant or not. And I think that that is basically what's happened here is like, yeah, it is a guild fee going in, but it also provides a good answer for when people who want to give them money say, do you have any legal exposure? Are you going to be sued? Because now they can say, you know, at least for these categories of things, FinCEN has basically said that their their violation stopped in early 2014. And they've now made amends for all of them. But the other thing that strikes me about this is that this is a precedent. They went after Ripple and fined them $700,000 for effectively three emails and one sale. There are a lot of companies out there that did stuff very similar to what Ripple did in terms of being able to you know sell their token or manipulate their token in some other way. Again, like Ripple has now set kind of the precedent where based on a per transaction basis almost, You've got a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of fines. And I just wonder if this, I mean, certainly it seems like this isn't the last we're going to see of it. I wonder who else is going to be next. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for episode 213 was provided by Stephanie, Andreas, and Adam. Music for this episode was provided by Jared Rubens and General Fuzz. This episode was edited by Adam B. Levine. Any questions or comments? Email adam at letstalkbitcoin.com. Have a good one.